Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to bring to you presentations from the 2018 RipperCon Jack the Ripper and True Crime Conference from Baltimore, Maryland in the USA. The following speaker is Bernard Bully, the author of the Jack the Ripper fiction book My Ripper Hunting Days, one of whose characters is Dr. Francis Tumbleteen. Bernard's Baltimore talk is about the good doctor and is entitled Tumblety, Historical and Criminal Evidence Issues. A PDF of his slideshow presentation is available to download on this episode's Casebook podcast page, and I encourage one and all to check it out. So let's listen in at the Maryland Institute College of Art to Bernard Bully. I just wanted to clarify a couple of things before I, I, uh, I begin. I mean, the first thing, you probably heard, uh, you guys ever been on casebook.org? Yes. Okay. You probably heard about a guy whose name is Pierre. Does that remember something, Pierre? I'm sorry, that's me. I should have been there. I'm joking. No, no, you can't, no. I just, no. No, no, I just wanted to make clear one. Well, the first thing I wanted to make clear, I'm not Pierre. I'm his older brother, <laughs> okay, I'm his older brother, so, no, I mean, Pierre made some very interesting remarks in many occasions, but sometimes he loses it and everything, and you'll probably find out uh, some similarities in what I'll be uh, saying later on, okay? The second thing, I'm not an expert, I mean, I'm not a Jack the Ripper expert, I'm not a Tumblety expert, I wrote a novel and I used Tumblety as one of my main characters. And during all these years I worked on this novel, um, I mean, I had to look for the uh, actual facts to see how far I could use Tumblety as a character. And I found out, well, I can't go too far with this guy, so, uh, but uh, I had to go through all the aspects. You know, uh, everybody knows Michael Hawley. He's, he's been interested uh, in uh, Tumblety for years. Uh, I think he and I have spent the same kind, uh, same amount of years. I've, I've been interested in the Ripper case since, well, for the past 12 years now. And Michael is about the same thing, 10, 12 years also. So we're both fascinated by <coughs> Francis Tumblebee. Uh, uh, but I'm, I consider myself to be neutral. <coughs> Uh, when I was young, uh, when I went to high school, I studied with the Jesuits. You know what the, who the Jesuits are? Uh, they were the, uh, they still are the most, uh, well, one of the most powerful Catholic congregation, okay, existing. The other one being the Dom- Dominicans. <clears throat> the uh, Jesuits hated the Dominicans at, at such a point that uh, if you want to become a Jesuit priest, they would teach you how to uh, use a pistol and a sword. And if you remember the Three Musketeers, Aramis was a Jesuit. Uh, so I studied with the Jesuits, and the Jesuits would tell you they had two concerns. Okay? Think by yourself and think differently. And they would teach you how to think by yourself and think differently. They had you read books, they had you work on papers, and if you, know, you, you, you did it wrong, they would tell you you're thinking like a Dominican. So they would give you another paper to copy 10 times and bring it back. So, <clears throat> so what does that mean? <clears throat> does that mean even if we, they think differently, and if I think differently, it came out as a bias, okay? They built a bias in each 
and every student that studied with them. It's a template <coughs> we've been using, students from the Jesuits. And if you think <coughs> I'm a, you know, very special in being that way, every school did the same thing. Everywhere you studied, your family, the society in which you've been living, the environment, okay, from your younger years, brought you on a certain direction and making you develop, um, uh, you know, without knowing it, developing a uh, template you're still using today. So the point is, you don't have to ask yourself, is this paper uh, biased? Am I biased? Is he biased? We're all biased. Does that mean when we're reading a paper, it doesn't have any sense, doesn't make any sense because of the bias? Not at all. I mean, we got to be aware that the guy who's wrote, written the paper is biased. When we read it, we're biased. It's, for me, it's like, okay, consider a, a, a pint of beer as the uh, evidence, okay, the primary source. And there's the, this Scottish guy asking this French guy, the Scottish expert on Scotch, Glenlivet, Glenfiddich, and he's asking this expert wine taster to give his opinion on a pint of beer. What do you think is going to happen out of there, okay? The pint of beer, nobody really likes this kind of pint of beer. The guy, the guy only drinks scotch, the other guy only drinks wine. So what do you think the result is going to be? Biased on your side. And you can fight till you die, and you're never going to be agreeing on the actual flavor of the, of the pint of beer and give an objective uh, uh, opinion. <coughs> so, when we study a suspect, <coughs> this is always there, okay? Uh, and what I, <coughs> um, um, I want to share with you is uh, certain thoughts about the, you know, the possible bias in the way we look at Tumblety. And this goes for any suspect. I mean, I, I, I'm not focusing on Tumblety to dis dismiss him. I'm just focusing on Tumblety because he's probably the suspect I know the most. Okay. <coughs> so we're going to be covering uh, <coughs> what Tumblety said, what was said about Tum uh, what Tumblety said about himself, and how should we conclude? <coughs> the problem is when we start interpreting, and you'll find that out also that historians never agree on how to approach history. It's still a, a, a gigantic debate. Okay, and if you look at a specific event in a, 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 in a historical era, you'll find the same kind of situation. Nobody agrees on how we should approach the Ripper case. Have you ever read, uh, read uh, on uh, casebook.org or GTR forum, uh, forum a methodology where everybody agrees upon? You'll never find it. You'll never find a book, a piece of literature accepted by the community, you know, agreeing upon a methodology to interpret. It's each case brings out a new method. <clears throat> but <clears throat> I won't talk about the methodology, but I'll, I'll, because it's so complicated, I'll just give you three elements that I think are very important, the basic steps. Uh, okay, am I biased? Okay. The first step I think we should go through is uh, what I call, uh, well, it's not me, but uh, many experts call conventional meaning. When you read a primary source, what one reads means what it says. Nothing more than a common understanding of a group of words, a sentence, for example, at a specific time in a specific culture. Okay? Of course, 
before being able to go to the conventional meeting, you have to have a, 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 the pre preliminary step, which is the literal meeting. Uh, you'll see, I'll give you a couple of examples later on, how we sort of uh, uh, forgot to use the conventional meeting. The second step is the contextual meeting. It, again, it's the context of what is read, or to be more precise, the remaining portion of a text where the words were taken from. Okay, some people will call it, well, cherry picking. If you don't, you know, respect the uh, context. Uh, the circumstances which may cause a text to be written in a certain way in a certain time are also part of the notion of contextual meaning. And I'm, I'm not inventing these uh, concepts. They've, they've been there uh, for everybody. The third step is the author. What do we know about the author? Okay. Uh, and sometimes, uh, you know, he's going to give you a description of facts, events, and he's going to also, you know, quote people. He's going to give you an, an opinion. So you got to know how the author works, what he's thinking, what's, what's his mindset, what's his bias, okay? We often forget that. <clears throat> and, the, uh, of course, the... Uh, Think the, uh, yeah, that's okay. So let's have a look at uh, Tumblety and see, you know, the, the sort of weaknesses we may go through, or some people may have gone through already. The first time we heard about uh, Tumblety was uh, on November 17, where the uh, New World Cable Dispatch uh, said that uh, he was arrested <coughs> and released after that. We got to uh, remember that the, uh, he wasn't the main topic of the article. Uh, George Archer was the main topic of the article. What's important in this case is that um, Michael managed to find out that there was no tempering in the uh, dispatch. You know, he got the uh, dispatch as it was received and as it was used by many newspapers. These texts are exactly the same. No editing, no manipulation. <clears throat> at all. So that's important to check the uh, validity of the, uh, the paper. <clears throat> uh, there's a strange coincidence, though, about this little thing. It was picked up by newspapers. <clears throat> the only newspapers who actually picked it up were the newspapers where Tumblety used to work or live, where Tumblety was known as a sort of uh, bizarre guy. Okay? So <clears throat> you can start asking yourself, what was the intent of the journalist when he wrote the article? Did he want it to ring a bell in these areas where Tumblety used to live? Perhaps. The, sex, the next day, a second dispatch from the same newspaper, you know, dispatch company, <clears throat> came out and gave a better description of George Archer without modifying anything else. But it, it insisted even more on George Archer. And one li little interesting thing about it is that they're, uh, they refer to the uh, uh, arrest that happened the week before. So the November 17th doesn't tell you that the arrest had just happened days ago. It happened the week before. So the week, well, we're talking about the famous week of the 7 November arrest, possibly. But that doesn't give you the exact date. So we're not talking about two arrests here in the uh, November paper. We're talking about an arrest that happened in the prior week, okay? <coughs> Uh, <clears throat> now again, what, what, why, did the, uh, why did the guy wait a week or ten days before sending a dispatch covering Archer and Tumblety? Okay, the, these were known figures. 
Okay? So probably just wanted to ring a bell and insist on, uh, you know, uh, uh, <coughs> having fun with it. And there's one thing also we also forgot. The main title of the article is Gossip. Okay? The, fin the first line of the article, Gossip. National Enquirer, does that remember you? Uh, okay. There's certain things in National Enquirer which are true, other things are false, but it's part of the gossip, okay, portion of news. Um, considering that, and considering all the rulings I read about the Victorian era decisions, <clears throat> the courts would only have accepted the use of the article not as an evidence of him being uh, 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 arrested for uh, Whitechapel events, but everybody, you know, uh, 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 an evidence showing that people knew him, okay? He was known <clears throat> and would refuse any inference from that uh, uh, evidence. <coughs> So, um, another aspect, the Indian herb doctor and prince of quack. <clears throat> Quackery in the 19th century was very popular in the United States. I mean, you had a quack in almost every corner. And the, the difference between a quack and a physician was that the physician had a license and you used uh, apothecaries to prepare his uh, remedies, whereas the quack would fabricate his own medicine. And you probably, uh, I'll just give you a name, a few names of products that uh, are still sold today and uh, belong to uh, quacks. Pepto-Bismol, Philips Milk of Magnesia, Smith's Brother Throat Drops, Vicks Vaporub, Beecham Pills, okay, these guys used to be quacks. We're still using their products today. Are, you, are we talking about quackery today when you go for a Vicks Vaporub? No. There's a one element we also forget is that <clears throat> quackery was very popular because immigrants coming in from Europe didn't have doctors where they used to live. Like, you know, we talked this morning that guys were coming in from Eastern uh, uh, Europe, Russia, and everything. They would use plants. And when they had someone in the United States offering them plant remedies. I mean, they would use plants. They would trust plants more than they would trust physicians. So, I mean, uh, a quack back then wasn't a bad thing. I mean, uh, 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 they used to call these doctors, I mean, uh, uh, saddlebag medicine, okay? Because in, in these towns and villages, you didn't have necessarily a doctor there. You had a guy on a horse with his set of the instruments and everything, a saddlebag <coughs> saddle medicine. So why are we talking about Tumblety as a quack, as if he was a bad guy, okay? He was making a lot of money, you know, doing a lot of business through e mail, I mean, not email, but through mail. But, um, he wasn't a bad guy because he was a quack, but we present him, we introduce him today as a fraud, a charlatan, I mean, okay, a bad guy, because he was a quack. <clears throat> and that's an, a major error as far as I'm concerned. I'll go uh, past the uh, <clears throat> uh, 
uh, Herb Dr. Portman case, I forget that. But there's one thing that's interesting. <clears throat> I got this guy. You know, ever heard about Kellogg? The guy from the Kellogg Cereal Company, G.H. Kellogg? Uh, he, had, he was a physician, a doctor. But what he would do is um, serve his people yogurt enemas to clean the body. Marching while eating helps uh, uh, digestion. Carbolite acid applications to the clitoris to prevent female masturbation. Is that what we're talking about? Okay, uh, uh, medicine. He was a, a physician, licensed physician, and he was sort of proposing these ways of, uh, you know, treating people which were, had nothing to do with medicine as it was known there. So <clears throat> you can easily imagine people deciding to go between a frosted flake, Kellogg, <clears throat> or a quack. So the choice was quite easy to do. I mean, I'd go for the quack instead of the frosted flake, <clears throat> Kellogg. Uh, now there's another thing you know, about the notion of uh, doctors and everything. There weren't that many doctors back then. I'll give you an example. <clears throat> At the beginning of the Civil War, there were only uh, 85 medical schools in the United States. And uh, they only could produce uh, between 700 and 800 doctors per year. Okay? Just, uh, wait a minute, I think I skipped something. Okay, so what, what happened? Where do you think this, the army got their uh, doctors from? They hired everybody they could, butchers, surgeons. <clears throat> uh, so don't be surprised to see Tumbley lining up to become one of them, a surgeon, okay? Everybody would do that. <clears throat> and just to give you some other figures, <clears throat> Only 98 medical officers for the Union Army at the beginning of the Civil War. At the end, there were 13,000. So, okay, that's a miracle. I mean, so that's why they picked up barbers, or, you know, uh, any, anybody that could be available. And they would, you know, they wouldn't use them as surgeons. They would, you know, they would be assistant surgeons and learn how to do amputations. <clears throat> Tumblety came in with his, uh, well, the knives, Tumblety's knives. Uh, we uh, remember Dunham's, you know, talked about the knives and everything, uh, and everybody's sort of challenging, was he telling a lie, or was he really telling the truth about Tumblety having knives? I mean, for me, it's totally irrelevant to talk about, this. was he lying or not? The probability of having Tumblety wanting to join the medical corps you know, ass-sucking uh, McClellan, he probably had a set of medical tools, <clears throat> okay? It would improve his chance of being picked up by uh, McClellan. But uh, had it been the case, he probably would have been asked to, you know, show us how you can use these knives. And they would find out he had the set but didn't know how to use them. It, they would still use them <clears throat> as an assistant surgeon because he had a set of knives and he was interested in working close to the, uh, the people. <clears throat> 93, 13,000. So they, had, they hired everybody. Even the, uh, the uh, army would um, train them, not only train them, 
but pay their, uh, their, uh, their examines after the Civil War for them to become official surgeons. That, that's unbelievable. This is just, uh, I'll show you an example. Uh, this is one that, when we're talking about uh, knives. When Dunham says he had some knives, he never specified what kind of knives he had. This is just one, one thing, uh, one aspect of the uh, sets they had during the Civil War. What kind of knives did he have? Surgical knives? Amputation knives? Just, I mean, we don't know that. <clears throat> so, uh, what I say is it wouldn't be unrealistic, although no evidence proves it, to have Tumblety well prepared the meeting he mentioned with McClellan by having his own set of knives. Because he even went to show, uh, as Dunham said, his collection of body parts. Okay? <clears throat> so, uh, don't forget that uh, <clears throat> Norris testified, a guy named Richard Norris testified during the will probate uh, to uh, decide if uh, Tumulty was sane or not. If he was insane, I mean, the will would have been canceled. And he testified that Tumulty owned many knives. Okay? So this is the second time someone mentioned Tumblety possibly having a set of knives, but nobody specified what kind of knife. Surgical knives, dissection knife, physician's knife, okay? We don't know, but there's two people <clears throat> saying that he probably had, well, he had a set of knives, which is the probability, like I said, of having a set of knives, of knives is so high. I mean, discussing is, uh, the uh, credibility of Dunham is totally irrelevant. We're wasting our time. The thing we should start discussing, if he had knives, did he intend to kill someone with them? The intent, <clears throat> okay, that's what the important part. Let's assume he had possibly some knives. I mean, <clears throat> back then, owning a knife, and the same thing in Whitechapel, by the way, owning a knife, a man owning a knife was as common as a having a woman having her handkerchief in her pocket, okay? They were two elements, basic elements you'd have with yourself, okay? <clears throat> so, I mean, let's go for the real issues, the intent, probable intent, and the actual uh, use of knives or possession of knives in Whitechapel. And not, well, he's probably telling a lie. <clears throat> well, it's just my opinion, but I mean, we should ask these questions. Instead of debating in the wrong area, let's debate where the problem is. That's a basic issue. Any inference made by, as a consequence of any anterior possession of knife by Tumblety, okay, is uncorroborated speculation. We don't know if he had any knives. To this day, maybe Michael will come up with something, but to this day, we don't know if he actually had knives. Did he knew how to use these knives? We don't know either. <clears throat> Tumblety's anatomical knowledge. That's one other aspect that's really funny because uh, those who've been reading on Casebook or forum, a GTR forum, you know how the debate is still going on, okay? Uh, and, but nobody tries to define what anatomical knowledge is. Back then, no doctor who had worked at the inquest ever mentioned, gave their definition of anatomical knowledge. He said they had and anatomical knowledge, and the other guy said, no, he didn't have anatomical knowledge. 
nobody defined what they meant, okay? Uh, <clears throat> they never even mentioned if it included surgical knowledge, just not uh, anatomical knowledge. You know, most of you guys have a basic anatomical knowledge. You know, the head's on top of the shoulder. That's an, a part of anatomical knowledge, okay? My head's apart on, uh, on my shoulder. That's good. Does that mean that um, Tumble T didn't have any anatomical knowledge? <clears throat> um, the physicians back then, in the middle of the 19th century, up till, let's say, in 1980, 1880, I mean, the level of, of knowledge, medical knowledge, was very low. I mean, you know, it, to be accepted in a medical school, they would ask you, if you speak English, you know literature, you know maths, Latin, Greek, physics, logic. You know, and the reason for asking that is to eliminate the guys from the lower classes. Okay, the guy who's working on the street, a guy like Tumblety, didn't know Greek, didn't know Latin. He would have been refused in the medical school. So that's a process of elimination. <clears throat> but on the other hand, we got this guy, Ziegler, a witness, again, in a probate case, who came out and told very clearly the extent of his uh, diagnosis, of Tumblety's diagnosis abilities. He knew how to make a diagnosis. And, you know, when you read, I think you, you wrote an article on that, right? And if you look at the medical literature back then, I got two books, and I, and I got PhD, uh, PDF performance of books. If you read these books, and you, you read what Ziegler said and what about Tumulty knowing how to proceed with a diagnosis, you'll find in these two books exactly the same technique. So probably Tumulty, and these, are, these two books I got here on PDF format, these were the best sellers. It's 101 Medicine for Dummies, okay? They were best sellers. So, I mean, he could have you know, just bought the goddamn book, one of the, the two book goddamn books, just to know where he could attack the physicians, okay? And by doing so, also learn the basic way of proceeding with a diagnosis. But what we don't know is, did he have any surgical skills? So again, instead of debating about, you know, anatomical knowledge, no, he didn't, yes, he did. Did he have any surgical skills? We don't know. What was the extent, uh, the extent of his uh, anatomical knowledge? And he gave us a pretty good idea based on Ziegler's uh, witness uh, uh, testimony. <clears throat> and I think it's a credible one. Because the, the portion where Ziegler talks, uh, I mean, Ziegler talks about uh, this approach, I mean, it's, uh, I think it's three pages long. Of, you know, of, of text describing what he did, how he, you know, and he was questioned by the lawyers, did he, you know, could he do this? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. <clears throat> so, uh, again, you know, we didn't ask it, we're not asking the good questions. Narcissistic personality disorder, psychopath, sociopath. Again, that's a full, uh, wasting our time. Um, well, I'll go I'll just give you, uh, uh, let me see, I think I forgot a slide here, but I'll tell you exactly something that's worth telling about. Uh, and we got a psychologist here?
you can uh, probably uh, help us out. Let me see if I get the... Okay, I'll, I'll read you out what I said here. Sociopathy and psychopathy are not official psychopathological diag diagnosis and are no longer part of the American Diagnosis and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, Volume 4 and 5. They should be considered as the, uh, the consensus, consensus uh, okay, the agreement of, of the specialists, they should be considered more as patterns of antisocial behavior and attitudes and not necessarily result in someone becoming a serial killer. For example, you know, we heard about the, the possibility of uh, Tumble Thief, uh, having this anger, retaliation, problem, issue. Did you know there's 12 types of anger disorders? Why retaliatory instead of another one? 12, okay? And we're not talking about narcissistic or psychopath, just anger disorders, 12, mentioned in these uh, reference books. As for narcissistic personality disorder, it's considered to be made of a constellation, a constellation of maladapted personality traits. There's an overlapping <clears throat> of so many elements of these disorders that you can't isolate the uh, narcissistic personality disorder sufficiently well to you know, provide an, a, a, a really valid and continuous kind of diagnosis. It varies from one case to another. Am I wrong when I say these things? or? Uh, <clears throat> You, you, you don't seem to know? Uh, <clears throat> Test. I mean, <clears throat> go on the internet and ask, you know, psychological, uh, psychological tests. And you have these online tests. And you're here, you'll hear about Hager's psychopathy checklist, which uh, was used by uh, uh, Michael, my good friend Michael. They're even less reliable than trying to figure out if the guy was psychopath, sociopath, narcissistic, anger, retaliatory. They're even less reliable. <clears throat> and this is what they say about um, uh, Hare's uh, uh, checklist. The problem with Hare's uh, psychopathy checklist is incorrect in conclusions, high risk of misuse, and lack of reli reliability. Okay? <clears throat> now, I'll go in the, uh, leave, uh, even a little further. This is what the uh, uh, sort of the uh, agreement between the international, among the international community of behavior experts. This is what they say. To make a diagnosis of PD, okay, personality disorder, a thorough and detailed systematicological evaluation is necessary. Not a simple test, 25 or 10, 15 questions. <clears throat> the complete life of history of the individuals examined is investigated in order to determine whether or not the lifetime pattern or behavior disorder exists. What they add, no reliable instrument has yet been created for the di diagnosis of PD. Consequently, <clears throat> the diagnostic reliability index is low with these tests. I mean, <clears throat> so why try to use, and even if, uh, you know, Mike goes for another kind of test, you better evaluate. I think it's, it's irrelevant. We know the guy was a sicko, okay? Is he sicko A1, B2, Z24? Totally irrelevant. The guy's a sicko, okay? Jack the Ripper was a sicko. <clears throat> Did he do it? 
you know, did he commit? Did Tumblety commit? Did, was Tumblety a sicko? We can't do it because there's, you can't, you can't interview Tumblety no more. The guy's dead, okay? And the problem with, uh, you know, with the 400 pages uh, Joe had the chance to read and Michael is still looking at them is that they, they cover only the three last years of his life. Right? Is that, am I correct by saying that? The, the, well, they're going, they're going before that for certain elements, but what they're... Well, 1896 and the Yeah, even, you know, we're talking about sometimes some events that happens in the 60s, 70s, or something, but the, the uh, mandate is to look at the three last years, you know, to see if he was insane for the purpose of his will, which was written at the end of his life. They don't give a damn if he, the guy was sick in, uh, in, in 1870. Uh, do you want to know if the guy was he insane or not during the last years when he wrote his wills? <clears throat> Um, so uh, what we should say about this aspect is um, don't go for it, you know, to try to find what kind of uh, personality disorder Tumulty may have suffered from. Look at the end result. Is there anything that could, you know, we can uh, <clears throat> uh, find that shows that he had these behaviors, specific behaviors, that would lead him to kill other people. Is there any pattern of violence present? We'll talk about these uh, violence, uh, uh, patterns of violence. <clears throat> oh, uh, just one thing, I mean, just for an example, how we, we sort of use different arguments. Um, if you go on these uh, forums, Casebook, or, uh, okay, you'll find that somebody mentioned at one point uh, a, a December 88 uh, newspaper article that said, Tumulty has been charged with a foundness for collecting anatomical specimens, and this has made, a conne uh, this has made his connection with Whitechapel atrocities appear probable. Okay, he's been charged with a, a charge, okay, with a fondness for collecting anatomical specimens. There's no such crime as being found, you know, fondness for collecting animal parts or body parts, okay, uh, either in the United States or in the UK back then. And there's no evidence at all that says a Scotland Yard made such a connection. So why start using these kind of arguments in these discussions just to create a sort of feeling that this guy was a bad guy by referring to these kind of articles? We've got to be careful. Let's go beyond the writing. Okay, another example. Uh, Wayne Baxter uh, at Annie Chapman's uh, inquest mentioned that an American had asked for uh, two institutions to procure a number of wombs, wombs for each of which he was willing to pay uh, 20 pounds. Curiously, there was no follow-up done by Scotland Yard about this uh, Element and it's still repeated in many conversations we find on Facebook or uh, GTR forums or on Casebook. We're still mentioning these things. How how come nobody's looking for any form of uh, of uh, follow up? If no, if Scotland Yard didn't do any follow up, I mean, it's probably that's not that uh, strong a piece of evidence. It's hearsay anyway. And there's another thing about possessing uh, possession of anatomical parts. Uh, we seem to forget that uh, since the uh, 17th century and up to the middle uh, of the 19th century, curiosity collections were uh, something very popular. I mean, everybody was, you know, 
had you know, everybody important, rich enough, had his own curiosity collection. It could be halls, cabinets, or whatever. And you'd find uh, all sorts of things. Okay, this is a woman who wrote a book about uh, the anatomical uh, 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 Venus. Okay, and you, she shows pictures of cabinets. I mean, you could look on curiosity cabinets <coughs> on the internet, and you'll find pictures. I mean, it's unbelievable. Um, so, would that be a surprise for Tambali to have his own collection? Was that unusual? Not at all. Because we're talking about a collection he had in the uh, middle of the 19th century. Did he have a collection at the end of his life in 1888? We don't know at all if he had anything. But at that time, it was still very popular, you know, and you invite friends. I mean, <clears throat> up until the, uh, I'd say, um, the end of the, uh, uh, the late Victorian era, the British would go in Egypt, buy mummies, and they had these mummy parties. They'd invite their friends at their home, open the mummies and see what they could find inside. Okay? <clears throat> so, I mean, it, it, strange people would do these kind of things because they were traveling, shrinking heads, shrunken heads. I mean, the, the Americans would go down, South America, the British would go down and bring back shrunken heads. I mean, you, you can't imagine all these pieces in these cabinet, uh, curiosity cabinets. So would that be unusual for Tumblety to have in his own? Especially, again, we're talking about the middle of the 19th century when the, the Civil War period. He had a, possibly a set of knives. And to prove he was able to become you know, a, a surgeon, you got the other section, right hand knives, the left hand body parts. Joined together, I'm at your service, General McClellan. Would that be unusual? Not at all. <clears throat> Today it would be, but not back then. So why are we using the fact that he had knives, body parts, to, sh to prove that he was a bad guy? And if he was a bad guy, he probably was a murderer also, because he had these personality problems? It doesn't add up. It doesn't add up in my mind. You can always suggest it, but you can't conclude that. The woman hater. <clears throat> well, we know now that woman hater doesn't mean someone you, you know, a guy who wants to kill a woman. Um, misogyny, misogyny, uh, homosexual. So, um, Why should we create a big deal out of it? And we're still using these uh, quotes. I mean, if the guy was such a woman hater, how come most of his clientele were, uh, were women and children? Uh, the, the, uh, in almost every ad you find of Tumblety, you find this little uh, sentence. Tumblety with a particular attention to all diseases peculiar to females and children. Why would he, you know, accept females if he was such a woman hater. Um, to be a, you know, a violent woman hater, you have to have some sort of evidence. Are there any traces of aggressive behavior against women? There's one case that was mentioned that uh, you sort of scream at a woman and you know she ran out of the office. She was so scared of him, she ran out, but that's the only form of, let's say, um, 
aggressivity against a woman. It wasn't physical. It was verbal, psychological, but it wasn't physical. The only cases of physical uh, uh, aggressivity found with Tumblebee were against men. And again, there's no, well, it almost went to court in some cases, but there, he, never was, he was never charged, I mean, he was never convicted, convicted of any criminal behavior against women, uh, men, neither woman. So, <clears throat> even when he said they would all be disemboweling, okay? At one point in his life, uh, he, he had this guy, uh, what's his name again? Uh, Norris. I think it was Norris. Yeah, Richard Norris. He said, it seemed that he said about somebody telling him, you know, if I, it were me, I would disembowel all the women, I mean the streetwalkers. Not all the women, the streetwalkers. <clears throat> well, that's the only, uh, the second probably, the second probable situation where we find a, a, a aggressive behavior against women. I think I found another one uh, a couple of days ago. But, I mean, this is uh, psychological and uh, verbal violence. It's not physical violence. Uh, on the other hand, we seem to forget that um, Tumblety had a couple of guys who knew him for years. Okay, the... Uh, I've got to find this one. Um, the chief detective at the hotel he used to stay. And the uh, clerk at the same hotel. These guys knew him for 20, 30 years. And what they say is, well, we know he didn't really like women, but never he, we never seen any act of violence against him, no aggressivity of any sort. And one even said, him killing a woman? He wouldn't even have the nerve to kill a chicken, okay? So, I mean, you got certain uh, uh, things that were said by one person Norris, who said it, it happened once. Bring that to court, <clears throat> these two, three witnesses, okay? Two guys who've known him for 20, 30 years, and they said, this is what we know of him. He's always been like this. Okay, this is pat his pattern. And you got Norris who said, well, he said once that he would disembowel women. Who do you think the court is going to, uh, or the jury is going to accept as a credible witness? The guy who said it happened once? He said these words once? Or the guys who said, this is who he is. This is what he was during the past 20, 30 years. <clears throat> so we got to be careful and uh, bring out all the elements, not just the elements, you know, the bad guy side. Um, I'll skip the... Uh, Oh, uh, there's one thing. Oh, yeah, I've got to talk about this one. I'll be skipping the, uh, this thing said about, you know, too, uh, Tumblety being too old. Uh, okay, not, you know, too old to kill or too tall to kill. Uh, I could quote what I gave as an explanation in my novel about uh, Tumblety being too high. I mean, it's so funny. I mean, uh, the other element, little child's suspect, the little child letter. The funny thing about the little child letter, I mean, not the letter itself, but the funny thing about the argument, the, the little child letter argument, is that we only mention a portion of the letter, okay? Um, 
with the, uh, in connection with the Whitechapel murders, but amongst the suspect, and uh, to my mind a very likely one, was a Dr. T. That's the only portion we sort of focus on. But if the, uh, you read the rest of the letter, okay, although a psychopathia sexualis subject, he was not known as a sadist, which the murderer, murderer unquestionably was, okay, so um, we sort of put aside that element. I studied law, you know, um, I'm not a lawyer, but I studied law. If I were, uh, if I was somebody's uh, lawyer, this is what I would bring up in court. You said that Dr. T, and I quote, was amongst the suspects, and to my mind, a very likely one. But you also said, and I quote, although a psychopathia sexualis subject, he was not known as a sadist, a sadist which the murderer unquestionably was. Either you are telling us something obviously contradictory, or you are dismissing him as being Jack the Ripper. How could Tumble T be at the same time a very likely suspect, but not the murderer? He, you know. Which one of the two I gave you should we consider, and should the jury consider? I myself am about to ask the court to dismiss this confusing part of your testimony. I'm not, I'm not a lawyer, but I studied law sufficiently to know that this is the kind of argument that would have been used in court. It's so obvious. There's so many other questions. Why, you know? Why did little child, can't, uh, how, how, you know, well, I'll pass them because I don't have enough time. The credibility of the little child, it could, it, it, could, it could be attacked quite easily, okay? I'll give you an example. <clears throat> Where did uh, little child pick up the expression psychopathia sexualis? If you read his book, he never talks about psychological problems. He never uses this kind of wording. Where did he get that? When did he pick that up? Is that because that's how you found out when the crimes were committed? Or is that years later? So, I mean, and who are you to define him as a psychopathist, okay, sadist? I mean, are you a, an expert in that domain? So this, his credibility, that, that's the thing about, you know, we so often forget that the Ripper case is a criminal case, okay? It's not only an historical event looked at by historians, psychological people, or, you know, amateurs like me, enthusiasts or whatever. It's a criminal case. So it, it has to go through the series of tests a court would go, ask them to go through. And it, I, for me, I'm concerned that, uh, I'm convinced that he wouldn't pass the test. The criminal tests, okay, that the courts used back then, and we'll talk about that a little bit on. So, the example of Little Child's Little is probably the best example of uh, avoiding the contextual meaning of the whole text where the conventional meaning, and even the conventional meaning could be challenged, okay? The expression, psychopathia sexualis, and, and we eliminate the uh, contextual interpretation of the rest of the text. So that's a, a sort of, a, that's a, a probably a, a very good example of a weakness and Tumbleweed's not the worst case on me. I've got to tell you this. Tumbleweed's not the worst case on me. Tumbleweed provide us, provides us with so many pieces of data 
offering so many options uh, and so many interpretations. If I had gone through any other suspect with this kind of, you know, questions I've been asking, uh, comments, issues, I mean, it would have been much easier to eliminate or to, ch you know, challenge, not eliminate, but to challenge and bring out these serious issues with other suspects compared to uh, Tumblety. Uh, let's, um, oh my God. When they, you know, someone said at one point, Tumblety was uh, Scotland Yard's choice, that uh, three official officers of Scotland Yard uh, said that Tumblety um, was the Whitechapel murderer. They never said that. We know what Anderson said. It was said that um, uh, well, we know what Littlechild said, but uh, it was said that Anderson, Anderson also considered Tumblety as being a, 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 a Jack the Ripper or a murderous suspect. He never mentioned Tumblety as being a, a Whitechapel murderous suspect. Because uh, Tumblety, uh, Anderson thought that the guy was a Polish Jew, not Tumblety. Uh, there's um, Andrews. Okay, Andrews. It's been said that Andrews also, you know, said that uh, he, Tumblety was a Whitechapel, well, a Whitechapel suspect and murderer. He never said that. What he said exactly? Do I know Dr. Tumblety? Of course I do, but he's not the Whitechapel murderer. All the same, we would like to interview him for the last time. We had, uh, we had him, he jumped jail. He's a bad lot. I mean, there's so many, he was caught in so many situations with younger men. Everybody knew him for that fact. You know, he was running after men, young men. Uh, he had a reputation as a, a guy looking for younger men. But, um, and if Andrew, you know, had access to uh, Tumblety's record, and actually I think he really had access to Tumblety's record, um, of course he knew Tumblety, but came to the conclusion he's not the Whitechapel murderer. Now, you can't say that Andrew said, well, he was, a, 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 okay, a suspect or a murderer. No, he never said that. There's one thing, <clears throat> You know, we also say is that, uh, well, Tumblety admitted being arrested for uh, the Whitechapel murder, which is a, a fact, uh, but he was dismissed. Let's try to conclude here. <clears throat> We're talking about circumstantial evidence, not only with Tumblety, but any suspect we're talking about circumstantial evidence. <clears throat> um, there's one thing we've got to know about circumstantial evidence. If you've got two tons of circumstantial evidence, it doesn't become proof. Are we clear with that? <clears throat> and what I say, a cluster of evidence does not lead to a guilty verdict. You have to prove each and nearly every element. And the courts use the uh, three cri criteria, you know, in the evaluation of uh, uh, circumstantial evidence. Relevance, exclusivity, and independence. Relevant basically means that the evidence contributes to explain the motives, the means, and the opportunity a suspect might have had. The problem we often fa uh, face is that ripperology historians, as most historians, 
do, do rely upon a test we could define as the reasonable relevancy test, which is historical, uh, uh, you know, uh, an approach historians use, okay? Reasonable relevancy. While criminologists rely upon a test of rel relevancy that goes beyond a reasonable doubt. It's, these are two different tests. Exclusivity means that the evidence presented applies only to the concerned suspect's case. If the same piece of evidence could be applied to two people, two guys, I mean, you better have good lawyers to say which one is the good one, okay? You're, you're going to have a long fight about that. And you won't probably even convince because you have two guys who could have been doing the same thing with the same motives, the same opportunity. You're going to have a hard time to convince the jury also. Because the judge, when he's going to look at the evidence before accepting it, he's going to you know, go through these three tests. And these are, I got court rulings, you know, uh, supporting what I'm saying. I'm not just inventing this. Even back then, this is what the uh, basic principle behind uh, 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 circumstantial evidence. It has been said that the circumstantial evidence is to be considered as a chain and each piece of evidence as a link in the chain. This is the uh, late Victorian court ruling. But that is not so for them. If any link one breaks, if any one link broke, the chain would fail. What the court decided is that it is more like the case of a rope composed of several cords. It's not a chain. Okay, the basic argument behind the uh, circumstantial evidence: you can't fabricate a chain. It's a strand of strings. And the same kind of ruling. Uh, is found in the American courts. Um, like I said, uh, uh, like I say in my text, the ruling still stands today in UK, but strictly concerns parallel strands of evidence. Okay, when a, an argument resulting from circumstantial evidence are used to produce a second generation of circumstantial evidence, the chain of evidence applies again. Inferring from a piece of evidence, circumstantial evidence, another series of circumstantial evidence, you know, you're, you're making up a chain, and if one portion of the chain breaks, your chain is lost. Now, it's always going to be the jury's going to decide, okay? Even if the judge accepts it, it's the jury who's going to make the final decision. Another aspect of criminology is uh, character evidence. Uh, it's probably the most complex piece of evidence you can introduce in court uh, because, again, they got these two, uh, this sort of ruling in UK back then and still in the United States and still, ha uh, still used today. Um, it's the um, reputation factor which is concerned by uh, character evidence. I mean, you, 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 just, you just can't bring up, uh, you know, the behavior of Tumblety and define it as, you know, a valid piece of evidence. Because we're talking, uh, and to define him as a bad guy, character evidence, okay? Uh, it has to be his reputation. Was he known to be this way by everybody? You can't bring up a series of specific incidents which happened in Tumblety's life. You have to have a set of ongoing events that 
uh, creates a reputation based on facts, based, based on testimonies, and not single incidents, which is the case of Tumblety, which I mentioned in his violence behavior. Okay, uh, well, I, um, what I should say about, um, uh, about Tumblety is that, I mean, there's no reason to dismiss Tumblety just because of what I said here. What we've got to do is be very careful. We've got to add ourselves a series of other tests because I think we've omitted a lot of tests, like I just mentioned above here. We omitted and, or we sort of gave less importance to certain aspects, we should have the, uh, a more serious look at uh, whatever uh, happens around Tumblety. And the 400 pages that Michael has actually is probably going to offer us another series of opportunity, you know, to better understand at least who this guy was. Uh, serial killers, you don't become, uh, uh, you know, you don't improvise yourself as a serial killer. There's a pattern going on in your life when you're young. You got three elements. Three phases, like I think I mentioned earlier, you got these three phases that have to be uh, shown. Uh, the, uh, the isolation phase with a young guy, or, you know, and goes up to 25, almost 30 years old. Well, the guy is so frustrated, he isolates himself. Second step, once he's isolated himself, is create, beginning the creation of his fantasy world. The third step is the learning of violence. Now, it, it doesn't, you know, these, some of these steps sometimes overlap. Sometimes they happen, one step happens, and then nothing happens by four or five years, and then it goes to the second step. But these three phases or steps are found in all these studies of serial killers you, you can uh, find in the literature. So um, we don't know how Tumblety behaved when he was younger. There's a portion of his life we don't know. And I think uh, knowing Michael, he would really love to find, you know, what, same thing for me. I would really like to know what, what he, how was he going, doing, you know, when he's younger. Especially for the uh, learning phase, the learning of violence. I, I mentioned to Joe uh, that he was still very young during the Civil War. So he probably could have experienced situations learning of violence. Not, and the learning of violence is not something you do yourself. It's something you see and you enjoy. Okay, so during the Civil War, the war, uh, Tumbley, who was still young, could have appreciated, you know, this portion of his life, learning about violence and enjoying it, which could bring out uh, again a series of uh, serious discussions this time. Not, you know, because we're, we're coming out with a situation where we can define a, an ongoing pattern, a validation of uh, phases. And we can come out to a, a, probably a better conclusion on either side of the coin, yes or no. But let's try and work it harder. Now, imagine if we did the same thing with the other suspects. I won't ask you who you would dismiss. Just ask yourself the same questions you know, concerning any other subject and see if they pass the test. I consider that Mike is doing a fantastic job. He knows, he's aware he's got a little bias. He, he, tell, he tells us, he's open-minded. He, the way he considered Tumblety in, in, in 2009 is not exactly the same way he's considering today. Okay? Um, he knows he's got a bias. He's still looking. He's fascinated, as I am, by Francis Tumblety. And only, you know, the, the pleasure of finding more about him is sufficient enough. 
And he says, I'm not concluding about it, I'm suggesting. And that he's very cautious. He doesn't impose his understanding of tumulty. He suggests. Okay? So, um, thank you very much. And that was Bernard Bowley's Tumblety Talk from Baltimore's 2018 Ripercon True Crime Conference. I'd like to thank Bernard, Nikita Brotman, and Chris George for making the recording of this presentation possible. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations all about Jack the Ripper, East End history, and Victorian and Edwardian crime. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcast releases, you can contact us on the Casebook message boards or find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for RipperCast. I would like to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.